Hey, everybody. So we recorded this episode about Terry Funk a few weeks ago. And in the meantime, we've just been monitoring the news that's been coming out about WWE and Vince McMahon specifically. So before we jump into our regularly scheduled Wrestling Academy, we just wanted to give our thoughts about how we're feeling because honestly, everything I've been reading is really shocking and really sad. And for me personally, I'm, I'm only concerned about everything that's going on with the victim. You know, we have one person who's come out, but uh, being a wrestling fan, who's been looking behind the scenes, this is not the first time I've heard of these kinds of allegations about Vince McMahon specifically. So however it affects WWE and the talent and the storylines and all that kind of stuff is all just secondary to this happened to a real person. And I am mm-hmm. just saddened and it's, it's shocking to just like hear the depths of cruelty and, and sadism just enacted on, on a human being. And that's, yeah, it, it's, it's just been tough to get my head around about, yeah, as a wrestling fan, somebody who turns to this kind of stuff for escapism and then real life comes crashing back into it. But again, my feelings about wrestling come almost completely secondary to this like real life situation that's happening. Yeah, I think that a lot of people are kind of tiptoeing around things and f- having all sorts of confused feelings. But I think for us, and I'll speak for us until you tell me not to, Michael, is that it's it's really not confusing what to do here. Uh, Vince is a monster, terrible person. We're happy that he's gone. And if there is anything in you, listener, who thinks that, ah, maybe Vince is a, was, you know, m- misrepresented, then uh, you can find another podcast to listen to because we, we don't need your listens and we don't need your loyalty. Yeah, and I think just piggybacking off of that kind of thing, I do feel like a lot of times when it, it I can only speak, I'll keep it in the wrestling context because that's the podcast that we're doing, but there have been wrestlers who have done monstrous things. And I think sometimes in the name of fandom and being a fan, people will give them an excuse of just like, Oh, well they had a really good match. So I I have to overlook the fact that they did something terrible. Uh, Actually, no, you don't. And I think in this instance, it's very clear, like Vince did something really monstrous. So I'm going to do my best to erase him from my memory. I'm just like, sure. He created a company that, I enjoy it to this day, but he has not been a part of it for years. And I hope he continues mm-hmm. to not be a part of it. And I hope every every single like scrap of his legacy is erased and that anybody who was in place protecting him. So if it comes out that there was a wrestler that I was a fan of or championed and they were a part of this somehow, then I have no problem cutting ties with them, too, because that's just more important than than the sport that we love. But at the end of the day, it's still entertainment and the crimes they Mm -hmm. committed affected real people in real life. So I think it's a pretty clear cut decision for me. Yeah, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be hard to be on the right side of history. Like Slim Jim was. Yeah. Great. Hats off to Slim Jim. Right. (laughs) Hey, Slim Jim, seriously, thank you for doing the right thing. And all right, with that, Let's jump into Wrestling Academy. 
was Terry Funk screaming forever his adrenaline version of post-nut clarity? To me, it's th- that's not post-nut clarity. To me, okay. that's the, the shit you say when you're about to nut. You know what I mean? Where you're like, oh, I'll say whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, man, we're probably going to have to cut all of this. <laughs> Hi, I'm Sammy Junio, Homecoming King here at Wrestling Academy. And on many occasions, we've been accused of a lot of things. We've been accused of being the hardest hitting podcast in America. We've been accused of being the bloodiest, goriest podcast in America. We've been accused of being the most violent, hardcore podcast in the history of America. Well, everybody, on February the 1st, 2024, that was the day the line was crossed. Listen or watch this podcast and see exactly what I'm talking about. And remember, Wrestling Academy podcast is for everyone, including the bloodiest, most violent headmaster, Michael Classic. Michael, hi. Hello. Welcome to Wrestling Academy. (laughs) Sammy, that was incredible. Was it? Giving us us Joey Styles? (laughs) What are we doing? (laughs) Look, I I get infected by everything that we we research, and this was just one thing that hit me that I was like, I got to do it. I loved it. I thought it was great. How are you doing this week? This week, I'm doing doing great. I, uh, I'm... At my bloodiest, it feels. Am I <laughs> menstruating? I don't know. Michael, how are you doing? Sammy, I just got to look. <laughs> yeah. I just think it's really cool that you're putting on such a brave face. You say that you're doing fine, but we both know that you're not. We both know that you're working hurt today because you dropped a weight on your foot I and did. you're still podcasting through it all. It's like the spirit of the subject of today's episode has gotten inside of you. And I've, if I can be honest with you over, over this past week, I've been noticing your fighting spirit has increased to unimaginable legendary levels. The thing is like I retired, I retired from doing this podcast when I was 23 and today I came back at the ripe age of 35. So, you know, (laughs) that's right. Sammy retired four times this week. (laughs) (laughs) Like 30 minutes ago, right when I drove, the weight on my foot even yeah you, you, you pulled a quick little retirement for a half hour and we're back for our reunion podcast episode i'm so excited to have you i'm so excited to be here on wrestling academy a podcast that you and i started you're a lifelong fan of wrestling i'm fairly new you shared wrestling with me in such a way that it has stuck very well and we we started wrestling academy in hopes that we can make wrestling stick very well to you. So if you're new to wrestling or you're just getting back into wrestling, we're really hoping that we can stick our stick on to you and, and stay <laughs> with you and and get, get you all tangled up with us. Tangled up in barbed wire. That's what I was getting at, because today we are talking about the hardcore, not just a hardcore icon, but the wrestling icon, Terry Funk who had a 50-year wrestling career. And I I think you could attest, Sammy, you you didn't know anything about Terry Funk before we started recording today, right? No, not at all. I mean, I knew that... I knew of Terry in the sense that he got choke-slammed so hard that his shoes fell off in Hell in a Cell with uh, Undertaker and the Mick Foley. That's all. So in our Hell in a Cell episode, something we neglected to mention is there is a brief moment where after Mankind gets choke-slammed through the cell, 
cell. Undertaker's making his way down. A man stands face to face with the Undertaker and then gets chokeslammed as well. That man is Terry Funk. And Terry Funk is, I think for me, when I was getting into wrestling, he a little bit felt like a wrestler's wrestler a little bit where mm-hmm. when you get into it, he's sort of at the center of so many different stories. So anytime you look into anybody who's wrestling, so you, whether it be all Japan or mm-hmm. whether it be national wrestling Alliance, NWA, ECW, WCW, WWE, new Japan, he's wrestle. He's been involved with all of them. Mm-hmm. He's done everything. He's won everything. And is just one of the most soft-spoken, humble dudes, it seems like. Where the one thing, I think, above all that everybody makes clear when they talk about Terry Funk is that he was all about the audience and giving of himself to the audience, which is why he wrestled for 50 years and why he put himself in so many brutal situations that took years off of his life legitimately and wrestled hurt in ways that are absolutely mind boggling. And we'll get into all of that. But I just wanted to, before we get started, just say that I also didn't know a ton about him. And so he's always been one of those people who's been in the back of my mind of this is a really important person in wrestling, the development of wrestling. And I I wanted to know more. And now that we have a podcast where we do deep dives, on important topics in wrestling, I thought who better than to talk about the one and only Terry Funk, who unfortunately passed away in 2023. So uh, we're not going to be able to get to see him live, but it is cool to be able to go back and check out his catalog because I saw so many things I had never seen before when doing research for this episode. (laughs) That's for damn certain, Doug. I don't there has n- never been anything quite as brutal going across my my computer screen than these uh, Terry Funk matches. I think before we dive in, we just want to say, as always, to keep the podcast going at a reasonable clip. Again, like we said, this guy's had a 50-year career. So we're going to dive into one specific part of his career, and we hope that that can pique your interest enough to check out further exploration of Terry Funk because this man in wrestling has has worn many identities, has lived many different lives, has been associated with many different places. And I'm sure in, in subsequent episodes, we'll dive into all of those. But today, mm-hmm. we're just going to focus on the period of time in which Terry Funk became associated with the up-and-coming promotion, Extreme Championship Wrestling, ECW for short, a run that he started when he was 50 years old. So we're going to dive into all of that today. That's wild. Would you, do you, right now, in your heart, do you know of anything that you would do at 50 still? I'm going to answer your question with a brief story. So a few days ago, I went for a walk around my neighborhood, just a couple of blocks, and I did not put on my running shoes, which have insoles. Instead, I've just wore regular tennis shoes without insoles. And you would think I broke my ankle. I, it hurt (laughs) so bad. And I'm, I am, I am not 50 years old. But mm-hmm. I felt a thousand years old. And so sure. the fact that I can't walk around my block without special running shoes, because other, oh, otherwise I got to ice my ankle and it just hurts so bad. 
no, I can't imagine what it would be like to be a hardcore wrestler and be like, you know what? Let me just see if I like this and then get involved with tables and chairs and barbed wire and blood and doing flips out of the ring at 50 years old. No, I can't. I, I threw my back out just thinking about even <laughs> attempting to do a moonsault like Terry Funk did now. And again, I'm not 50. So this is it is wild at the age when most wrestlers are getting out of the game. He's unlocking a new a new chapter in his career. I think it's very impressive. And I think it's a thing that people just don't do anymore. It's I think it is a look at the old school mindset that a lot of wrestlers used to have, which depending on who you talk to, that's either a good or a bad thing. But all I can say for sure is that Terry Funk is one of a kind. Truly. Terry Funk's story is long and I'm going to do my best Mm. to summarize it. But when I say that Terry Funk has done everything, I literally mean he's done everything. He wrestled or was involved in every major promotion. So from WWF, WCW, ECW, All Japan, New Japan, he's wrestled everywhere. He's wrestled legends of wrestling like Luthez and Harley Race in the 1970s, all the way to new stars like Edge and CM Punk in the early 2000s. He's wrestled in 60-minute time limit draws, and he's wrestled in exploding barbed wire mm. death matches. And he was in the movie Roadhouse. No way. So, to, yeah, he's in it. it, it it's Swayze. They're in it. So to call Terry Funk a legend doesn't even scratch the surface on what this guy is all about, but we're going to try it. So his career starts in 1965. He's 21 years old. And to put things maybe into a, a perspective for you, Sammy. Mm. So you, we both saw the A24 movie Iron Claw, right? We did, yes. So the whole that whole movie is about the Von Erich brothers mm-hmm. and they're making their name in wrestling in the 80s. So Terry Funk was wrestling their father that's where he started so fritz von eric iron claw himself he that's that's who terry funk was making a name fighting and so wrestling at that time in the in the 70s 60s 70s was way different than you probably are thinking about wrestling right now so if you're brand new to wrestling obviously a very long time ago there was there was no wrestling on tv like wwf or wcw or aew or any of those things that you're thinking about and the way wrestling worked a lot more back then was in our second episode we talked about independent promotions right Mm -hmm. so just imagine there were a bunch of those scattered all around the country and each one was sort of doing their own thing and they operated inside of a certain market. So there was one in Texas. That's where Terry Funk started. There's one in Atlanta. There's one up in New York. They're all over the place. And so people would put on these independent shows and that's how they would draw their audiences. And so there was a very loose unifying thread it was called the national wrestling alliance nwa for short Mm. and they were sort of a governing body throughout these independent promotions and they created the nwa heavyweight championship and that was sort of the the, so every promotion had their own title but then the nwa title was the top title in the industry in america at that time and so they had a, a voting board who would choose 
who from these promotions would get to become the next NWA champion. And it was a very prestigious thing. Not a lot of people got to do it. And so in, in, a, in Iron Claw, in A24, a big plot point that they're talking about is they felt like the governing board was screwing them over and keeping them from becoming NWA champions. It's like a very mm. big prestigious thing. And so people get very, especially in the industry, got very competitive about that kind of thing. And so the way you got the vote to become the champion would was based on a lot of things. It was how popular you were, how much money you drew, how good and skilled you were inside the ring. So you had to be very marketable in a lot of different places in order for them to give you the distinction of being the NWA champion. And 10 years into his career, our guy Terry Funk becomes NWA hey. champion. Congrats, so he, he fully, yeah, so he fully like does it. He takes it over. And the main thing I've heard about Terry Funk throughout every interview I've heard about him is one, he does everything for the fans. He wants, he's all about giving people their money's worth. And that I think translates to him working a lot, working when he gets hurt and just sort of powering through to give everybody what they're looking for Two is he was always a little bit ahead of the curve. So being in North America is not sufficient to him. So he starts branching out and becomes a, one of the early crew of people who's going over to Japan mm -hmm. to get involved, to be an American getting involved with Japanese wrestling. So he debuts in all Japan in 1970 and I think All Japan was kind of just beginning there or in its beginning stages. It seemed like Terry and his brother, Dory Jr., were really, really helpful to Giant Baba, who was a co-founder of All Japan. And Terry and Dory would help by booking all of the talent, like the American talent, basically. So Baba would ask Terry and Dory to, to help them um, book. And... I think that, you know, Terry's loyalty and determination and like just, yeah, loyalty to the fans and stuff was really seen by the Japanese audience. And it's to the point where there's like women in the audience of his matches, like dressed up in cheerleaders uniforms for him. Huge in Japan, instrumental in Japan. And this is at the time where New Japan and All Japan are getting their starts. And so mm -hmm. I think he... There was a lot of who's going to get what talent in Japan. And so I think Terry could have potentially taken more money, but he he was loyal to all Japan because that was that's the people he started with. I love that guy. What a guy. So in 1981, after wrestling at all Japan for quite some time, he uh, Terry announces his retirement. So. It's 1981, and he's just like, oh, I'm going to be retiring in 1983. So we're tuning back in to August 31st, 1983, where Terry and his brother Dory, a.k.a. The Funks, go against Dan Hansen, who Terry actually trained, and Terry Gordy. Um, so this is, this is Terry Funks' retirement map. At this point, he's 39 years old, so he has been wrestling for 20 years at this point. I and so he's that. he's like, all right, I'm 39. My, my, my body's not where it used to be. It's time to retire. <laughs> right. And he, he did announce it. He announced his retirement early, as in two years prior, because he wanted to create tension and something to look forward to for the audience. As you mentioned earlier, he's really does everything for the fans. And I think this was like some really cool foresight that he had so that he would 
just like build tension to this really great match that when I was watching it without knowing that uh, he was, this was all like a plan of his, but just watching the match itself, there was so much uh, emotion that he was wrestling with or like this whole story of this match was, which was only 12 minutes and 36 seconds took, took me through to the point where I was crying at the end, but not like regular Sammy crying at the end of wrestling. It was, it was like really uh, super emotional. So yeah, take me through it. What 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 stood out? To, what took you on this emotional journey that you were talking about? Well, I think so. Terry shows up with a bandage on his forehead, right? And obviously, the other guys. I didn't know if they have a tag team name or not, but Terry's got a bandage, and even before the match starts. There's like streamers all over the the ring, right? And I'm going to pause here because I was really interested and curious as to like w- the tradition of these streamers because we don't see it at all in Western promotions. So I did a little bit of digging and found out that the there's like not an official explanation of the streamers aside from this possible uh, explanation where in the 70s, this company Mitsubishi Electric was sponsor of wrestling at the time, and they wanted to advertise the power of their vacuum cleaners. So they insisted that people throw paper streamers out into the, into the ring so that they could vacuum up the streamers. And I went on... <laughs> So stupid. That's, that's so, such a like insane. Like, hey, right? you know, it would be great. <laughs> like, if you if think we about threw a bunch of streamers, so we could vacuum them up. Here's the thing, though. Now that I'm talking about it, like thinking about my home vacuum and thinking yeah. about a pile of like streamers, I don't think that vacuum is gonna gather the streamers. But maybe if I get a Mitsubishi electric vacuum. It would actually suck up all the streamers. I'm just imagining how the how did the guy at that pitch meeting not get yelled at? Where he's like, "You guys, we got to push these vacuums. Uh, what do we do?" It's like, okay, you know how we sponsor wrestling? We uh-huh, just have to uh-huh, a bunch yes. of streamers, and then when they see us vacuuming them all up, they're going to be like, "How did you guys do that?" We're like, "Oh, Mitsubishi vacuums. <laughs> That's such a cockamamie idea. What a harebrained scheme." <laughs> I hope that's, I really sincerely hope that's true because that's wild. I'm imagining John Hamm like smoking a cigarette. Mad Men style. Right. Streamers. After reading about this Mitsubishi electric like fairy tale, I wanted to find proof. I wanted to find a vacuum in the ring, like taking care of the streamers, but I couldn't find anything. So if any listeners out there know, why there uh, people throw streamers in or, or used to throw streamers in wrestling ring in at wrestling matches please email us at wrestlingacademypod at gmail.com because i don't have the time to keep on researching vacuums at all you you really have entered your conspiracy theory era about it's not just people thought of a colorful way to celebrate athletes they were like no it's no. It's to sell vacuums. So if you have any leads, <laughs> let us know and we'll keep pulling on this thread. Or if we're getting Vacuuming too close to the truth, it. tell us to stop. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, so, Sammy, you said yeah. 
this match, by the end of it, it was you were so overcome with emotion that it was making you cry. Mm-hmm. What in the match? Because it was only 12 minutes. So what in the match was tugging at your heartstrings so much? Okay, well, Terry, as I mentioned a little bit ago, Terry came with a bandage on his on his forehead. And before the match even officially begins, um, the other two guys, Stan and Terry, one of them gets their elbow on Terry's bandage and then it starts bleeding. And then the match starts and Terry's in first for a little bit, but then it's Dory for a very long time. And, and, and Stan and Terry Gordy really, really do a number on Dory Jr. And they keep him far, far away from Terry for, you know, I think like three, four minutes of a 12 minute match. And it gets to a point where when Terry comes in, it is just a moment of relief and excitement and like, oh my God, thank you, Terry. You saved Dory from being destroyed in the ring. And then Terry quickly gets his ass kicked. Like at some point, Stan or Terry like hurts Terry Funk's knee so bad that that becomes the focus of attack. And so Terry's just getting his leg annihilated and these guys are just going at it. And so it just, it really did feel like a David and Goliath story. And then when Terry, despite all of the damage that was done on his leg, climbs up the turnbuckles and executes a flying sunset flip to pin Stan slash Terry. It really is a moment of, oh my God, you did it. Like you, you've overcome the odds. You're broken. You're a broken man. You're bleeding. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what, that's what got me. That makes me so happy to hear because we're going to get into some very, very brutal special matches later in the episode. But to hear that a match from 1983 (laughs) where they're just employing, honestly, not even in a bad way, but it's just like the the classic basics of telling a tag team match, right? Where you're all building to the hot tag and working over body parts, this classic wrestling stuff. And just to know that here we are, 2024, and a match from 1983 is getting the intended emotional response from you. I think that's beautiful. And I think that speaks to how powerful wrestling can be, where you don't have to do anything fancy. It's cool when wrestlers do, but mm-hmm. you can get back to the classics and it can be just as effective because it's all about putting Terry, who was very Terry Funk, who mm-hmm. is legendary in all Japan in peril and so the character that we all love and relate to is gonna get hurt and we don't want that to happen because we love terry funk and so yeah it's just beautiful classic storytelling and after the match because it's it's terry funk's retirement Mm -hmm. so after the match he grabs the microphone and he's he's thanking everybody and it becomes a famous terry funk's got a lot of famous things about it becomes a pretty famous touch point for terry funk because this is the this is his first retirement as far mm-hmm. as anybody knows, this is his only <laughs> retirement. He's retiring and yep. he's thanking everybody. He's talking about how much he loves the fans. And then he just starts yelling forever over and over again. Just like forever, forever, forever. forever. And it's forever. I found myself getting choked up 
Oh, yeah. It really, really, really affected me in a way where it was just like, this guy loves this so much. This is so important to him. And you can just feel it. It's it's the connection. It's the emotions. It's one of those things that really made me sit back and be like, man, this is why I love wrestling. Because it's stuff like this. Right. Where there's just like an undeniable emotion and just love of everything. I was kind of smirking while you were talking about that because I thought about like how we've kind of seen a little bit of the aftermath of like wrestlers who are still experiencing the adrenaline rush, but they're not wrestling anymore. So they're it's the the after the aftermath. And I was just like, was Terry Funk screaming forever his like adrenaline version of post nut clarity? Oh man, we're probably gonna have to cut all of this, but <laughs> I don't th- I don't think to me it's that that's not post nut clarity. To me okay. that's the the shit you say when you're about to nut, you know what I mean? Where you're like, oh, I'll say whatever. Like, <laughs> you can't cut that, man. <laughs> we just got funked. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, you know when when yeah, it's uh, to be it just seems like the thing where you're just so caught up in. Um, we take it out of a sexual context, but you're just so caught up in any moment where you're mm-hmm. so excited. Where I, I I've seen. I, it's the it's those clips that go viral of people on the news or politicians or whatever. Like the the was it Howard Dean who's like yeah. It's like <laughs> that, what that is is a dude who is completely encased in energy, and so he's like I can do or say anything. When you're in energy, you could just get caught up in it and you could just mm-hmm. say, you'll say whatever. And to <laughs> me, that is a little bit like, I think it's so pure. So when Terry Funk is screaming forever, it's just like, it, it's poetry. I don't even know what he means, but I know how he feels and yeah. he feels how we all feel. And it's So to me, it's one of those things where it's like, oh yeah, it's just lucky that he's in a business and he, he's articulate enough to where he can tap into his charisma and not say something like crazy but <laughs> if it was me i'd probably be like yeehaw or, so, or just something i don't know i mean if it were me just rewind to the beginning of this podcast because that like whatever i rattle off in the beginning is exactly somebody <laughs> like scrambling around i'm i'm blacked out but it yeah, is you definitely just have acting it... out of energy <laughs> yeah you haven't hit that nut yet bro come on <laughs> <laughs> ah, i need a nut <laughs> yeah get like don't, don't we all don't we all so like we said 39 years old cherry funk and he has retired. So I think at this point, he's weighing his options. He's starting to work in Hollywood, do all that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. let's be honest, dude, this guy's a wrestler through and through. So by the time we get to 1989, so six mm-hmm. years later, he finds himself getting into another angle with Ric Flair, where Terry Funk has been like wrestling off and on, but where it's it's 1989 mm-hmm. and he's he's coming off of his promotion of the movie Roadhouse, the view is that like, oh, Terry's gone Hollywood. He's not about wrestling anymore. And so he has a he has a, a, a moment where he has a very respectful conversation with Ric Flair. And he's like, hey, you know what? I'd like to challenge you for the title. And Ric Flair's like, you're not a wrestler, dude. I, no way. <laughs> like, you will not be able to get a chance at my title. And so what wow. does Terry Funk do? He pile drivers Ric Flair through a table. <laughs> <laughs> Which... In the 80s, 
was pretty wild stuff. So th- this kind of thing yeah. now, you hear about it now, and you're like, this is classic wrestling stuff. But at the time, these guys were doing all this stuff for the first time. So the fact that Ric Flair, Terry Funk, these guys are old school. So when Ric Flair gets put through the table, he... Mm-hmm. Go, he's gone for weeks. Nobody sees him. And he keeps doing interviews where he's like, honestly, I'm injured. I might have to retire. Like, I don't know if this is for me. Right. Anymore. And it's all just building that angle of like, can you believe Terry Funk would do something like this? This guy's evil. He attacked his beloved Ric Flair or whatever. So it's building to July 23rd, 1989 match at the Great American Bash. Ric Flair versus Terry Funk. So here's the thing, Sammy. Mm. Ric Flair's yeah. injury, part of the storyline. Something that's not part of the storyline is a few days earlier, maybe a week, Terry Funk legitimately breaks his tailbone. And it is an injury that is going to put him on the shelf for something like nine months. Oh, my God. And you know what Terry Funk does? What does he do? He He says that he's just imagining that if he does not do this match at Great American Bash, how disappointed all the fans will be. So he goes and he wrestles the match anyway with a broken tailbone and he doesn't acknowledge it. And then they continue to feud for another month. So he so he breaks his tailbone and then keeps wrestling with the broken tailbone for months afterwards. What drove me wild during this match between Rick and Terry is that the commentators the whole time were like, oh, Terry, don't don't go after Rick's neck. You're such a bad guy. Rick has been injured. How dare you? And then knowing that Rick was not hurt and Terry was for real hurt and getting slammed, it's like, this is this is wild. Yeah, it really it really drove me nuts to hear the announcers like kind of babying Ric Flair a little bit and be like, oh, well, he's such a champion. <laughs> But to be fair, that's part of the storyline is when Terry Funk attacked Ric Flair, he injured his neck. So he's just doing the storyline of what the match is, which is Mm -hmm. he he hurt his neck by giving him the pile driver through the table. So Terry Funk is the heel now. And so in the heel situation, he's going after the babyface Ric Flair. But I think now with us having the context and we're looking at Terry Funk's whole career, we're like, no, Terry Funk is the good guy, but I think Terry, what it is, is Terry Funk is old school. And so he mm. kept it old school and he's like, I'm going to wrestle hurt and I'm going to be the heel because that's what has been asked of me. And that's what I agreed to do. Insane. It is absolutely insane. I couldn't imagine doing it. Absolutely not. I like, I, I don't know. I, it, it's icy outside. And I almost was like, if I slip and fall, I'm going to call out of work for a week. But I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want to put that on me. <laughs> I've hurt my back almost slipping. Just, just being like, huh, huh, and then I'm like, oh, my back is fucked. Oh, like that. I mean, so I can't yeah. even imagine breaking my tailbone. No way. <laughs> and then getting slammed. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, the dedication that Terry Funk has is just, is incredible. And like you mentioned it earlier, how people talk about how he's your wrestler's favorite wrestler, but God damn it. He should just be your rest, your favorite wrestler, you know? After this episode, I, he might be. He, he's up there. This guy is incredible. Yeah, he rules. And so it's like, okay, they have they have this match and they go on. And so at this point, from what I was seeing, Terry Funk is starting to get a little bit disillusioned with 
the state of wrestling, where it's going, how it's looking. And so at this point, we're getting into the 90s and he's looking to change up his style. And so this is when he gets involved with a couple of new upstart promotions that both have their view at changing wrestling and taking it in into a more violent direction. So in Japan, he gets involved with this with this promotion called Frontier Martial Arts Wrestling. And that's yeah. going to be an episode all its own because they pioneer a thing called Exploding Barbed Wire Deathmatches. No. But over here, <laughs> but over here in America, he gets involved with a promotion called ECW. And that's what we're going to be talking about exclusively for the rest of the episode. So, Sammy, mm. do you know anything yes, about ECW? Queen. Have you heard about it? The only thing that I know about ECW for realsies is that when I walk a certain way down my block, there is somebody that has an ECW flag in their apartment. And that's all I know. All right. Awesome. This will be great because (laughs) I think this is one of those things that when I was a newer wrestling fan, I was just getting into wrestling Mm-hmm. ECW was kind of the boogeyman a little bit. It, it's it's the wrestling everybody would sort of warn you about. We're like, oh, do you want to hear about people doing insane, crazy stuff? You got to check out ECW. And so it, we'll get into what it is. But basically, ECW was very well known for hardcore wrestling making Mm. it super popular so like when we saw it when we saw in the attitude era they would have special hardcore matches but ecw that's sort of what they did all the time it's kind of like when we would go to those gcw shows Mm -hmm. that's that they owe they like they're a huge influence ecw on promotions like czw gcw all these ones that that do hyper violent or death death match style wrestling Oh, a huge debt to ECW, which is one of the promotions that helped pioneer it. You know how earlier we were talking about territories and the territory wrestling and each one mm-hmm. had their own. So there's a promotion in Philadelphia called Eastern Championship Wrestling. And so around 1993, the 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 owners of the promotion were having a disagreement. So they bring in this young, this young guy named Paul Heyman. Who was been a he's been a booker, he's been a writer, he's been a manager for WCW uh and and National Wrestling Alliance as a whole. So they're like, oh, let's let's bring this guy in. And so there Paul Heyman was having this feeling at the time that he felt like wrestling has become very sanitized and he wanted to take mm. it into an edgier direction. He he in the documentary The Rise and Fall of ECW, he mentions that. If you look at music, especially in the 90s, he wanted to do the same thing with wrestling. So he thought of your WCWs as like glam rock, and he Mm. wanted to do something that felt like grunge. And so he wanted to take wrestling in that direction. So, Sammy. Yeah. You know about Paul Heyman now. Now Mm -hmm. he's the manager for Roman Reigns in the WWE. (sighs) Yeah. But what did you think about experiencing young Paul Heyman? I was really surprised because thus far, me and Paul Heyman have had a little bit of a odd relationship because he is Roman Reigns' counsel, right? We're calling him counsel. And mm-hmm. he just, he quivers behind Roman Reigns when he's talking and stuff. So I felt so happy knowing that Paul 
is actually cool and not just that guy all of the time. And to even think that he was a co-founder of ECW, what a journey he's even been on himself. And so, yeah, I was, re- I was really excited to, to know that he's like actually cool and once went by Paul E. dangerously. Yeah, absolutely. It is It is WCW days when he was a manager. I'm glad that that's something you picked up on because Paul Heyman, not a wrestler, but I think for my money, you're never going to have somebody cut a better promo than Paul mm, Heyman. Mm-hmm. He's so good at the acting and storytelling aspect of wrestling that when you hear him talk, it's so easy to just get sucked up in the charisma and be like, oh, wow, this is crazy. So when he's doing something like being Roman Reigns, special counsel, he is playing this long character of being this weird, whining, sniveling yes man. But if he were mm. working with somebody else, he'd probably be doing a different character. And so his commitment when he's a manager is on the level of a of a Broadway actor, in my opinion. Paul Heyman, when he was running ECW, was he was the king of the castle. So every idea was basically his idea. So just imagine that, but just doing whatever he wanted, completely creative control. So what Paul Heyman wanted to do was he wanted to shake things up, right? He wanted to get into that grunge presentation. He wanted it to be edgier. It wanted to be more raw, more real. And so I'm hoping by me saying this, it's sparking in your mind. It's like, oh, that sounds a little bit like the Attitude Era. Mm -hmm. Interesting, right? Pretty interesting point, except these guys were doing that five years before the Attitude Era started. So, So these guys saw what was happening, and then I think they changed the conversation so much that these big companies had no choice but to respond and change too. And so what Paul Heyman was about was finding new fresh talent and doing crazy and exciting matches that people hadn't really seen before. But there was one problem because they were so new and they were working with new people. They needed somebody with a really solid reputation and with honestly a lot of high profile to get a lot of eyes on them. And that is where our man, Terry Funk comes mm, into the mix. Very cool. So Terry Funk has had this legendary career. He's, he's like 49 years old at this point. <laughs> He's done everything. He's been wrestling since he was 21, right? So mm-hmm. it's it's been like almost 30 years of him having a wrestling career. And so he's wrestled everybody. He's wrestled the legends. He's wrestled Japan. He's got the pedigree that when he shows up places, when he put when he endorses places, people take notice. And so he gets involved with ECW because he is also looking to make a change. And his philosophy and ECW's philosophy are almost the exact same. And so in January 23rd, my birthday, 1993, Terry Funk makes his ECW debut. And I cannot stress how important it is to have Terry Funk associated with ECW. I I couldn't find a single interview where someone was talking about the birth of ECW where they did not credit Terry Funk, where they're like, without Terry Funk, ECW would not have existed because at the time they could say we're a, we're going to have a match with Terry Funk who's a who's a very recognizable name in the in the wrestling world people know him and so they would show up and they would see all these new guys and it added a lot of credibility to what they were doing but it also got a lot of eyes on them early on I think one of the one of the big forays into getting a lot of eyes on them happened mm-hmm. at 
the February 5th, 1994 event, ECW, the night the line was crossed. It was a variation of a triple threat match between Terry Funk, Sabu, and Shane Douglas. And so Mm -hmm. what I was seeing, I was hearing a lot of people talk about this. I guess the way that they did this match was almost unheard of at the time. People didn't really do this, especially for a title. But Mm -hmm. this match was called a three-way dance. And so we've talked about triple threat matches in the past, right? Three people fighting, first person to get the pin wins. Mm -hmm. But in a three-way dance... If you get pinned, you're eliminated. So it's three, it'll go down to two. And then the last person, they get the title and they win. So to have a three-way mm-hmm. dance for the title, almost unheard of. And then the second thing that happened that was super unheard of is this match goes to a 60-minute time limit draw. Like when we talked about Okada Omega, th- those just don't happen very often. And people are like shocked. So at this press conference afterwards, Terry Funk is he's bloody he's crying and he basically is like i don't like what's going on in wrestling i don't like it's the direction it's going i don't like these big companies and what they're doing and what they're all about Mm -hmm. and so i have a ton of respect for everybody in this locker room and i may be an old man but i'm taking my stand here in ecw and i think all of those ingredients got just a ton of eyes and a ton of attention for being like, okay, these guys are are wrestling matches people haven't really seen before. They're doing wild stuff. And then they've got the legend Terry Funk co-signing them. Like, what are these guys? What are they doing? We gotta check we gotta check this out more. So WWE was happening. WCW was happening. Yeah, I think I think what he's talking about is just generally this is pre-attitude era. And so I think it's okay. just at that time, it was very family friendly, kind of cor- corny. I think people just thought it was it was boring or that it was for kids. Mm. And so it's just a lot of, you know, bright colors and good enough matches. But I don't think anybody was it's I guess I guess what I'll say, and this is just my own bias, is I've never really been interested to check out wrestling pre attitude era because to me it just feels (laughs) like a lot of looking for submission holds i don't know it's just it's never been super appealing to me it just feels very safe and sanitized and then i think by the time we start getting into the attitude era things start to feel more real and i think that's what terry funk was talking about okay sick and so before before the attitude era was happening was that the golden age or something is that what they were calling wwe yeah so that would be i see okay or it'd be the new, new, the new era, but and then the golden age, that'd be like Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And then it would be like Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels and all that kind of, all that kind of stuff. And again, it's, it's all fine. It's just one of those things where it's, none of it seemed very appealing to me. And so I think much like we were talking about in the 2015s to 2020s, is it just kind of got stale and people were looking for it to change and to evolve and to do something new. And so I think it was very exciting to Terry Funk because they were about to do something new. So I stayed tuned after Terry's emotional promotion and the people next up after Terry was Paul E. Dangerously and Sabu. And outside of the ring, obviously, I have n- no experience with Sabu, but at the time, he was the craziest man in wrestling. So he had security guards like holding him back a little bit. And then Paul E. Dangerously, aka Paul Heyman, went to the mic and did the talking. And 
I think it was this promotion that was like, oh, okay, Paul is actually cool. So he's basically just saying like, you guys suck. The match was rigged. Uh, Sabu could have won everything. He points to one of the guys is like, I don't think you're a good announcer. I think you suck. This is all I have to say to you. This is all I have to say to you. Thank you so much, members of the media. I hope you all go to hell. And I was like, okay, Paul, uh, let's go, dude. Young Paul Heyman had a real chip on his shoulder. And so he would constantly <laughs> do shit like that. The thing about Sabu, when you said that he, his presentation is that he's a sort of a wild man is they would bring him out to the ring Hannibal Lecter style sometimes. So oh he'd be God. on a board and he'd just have a mask and he'd be chained to the board and it would just be like, who the, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> What's going That's on wild. <laughs> yeah. So Sabu, <laughs> real wild guy. In ECW, I think Terry Funk, he's get he's in there, he's getting his feet wet and I think he really is enjoying letting his, his creativity flourish with these with this new brand of hardcore wrestling. And I think a very early example of this is the August 13th, 1994, Terry Funk and one of his many protégés, a young Cactus Jack, pew, pew, pew. are doing a match. This rival tag team, Public Enemy, rolls into the ring and starts like beating them. The match is, is like ruled a no contest. So now Cactus Jack, Terry Funk, are beating a public enemy. And in the midst of it, Terry Funk wants to hit him with a chair, but he doesn't have one. So he signals to the audience, basically like somebody throw me a chair and everybody, everybody in the crowd starts throwing their chairs into the ring. And I'm not talking like one, two, three, four chairs. It's like 30 chairs, 30, 50 chairs get through. It's raining chairs for a minute and a half. So the commentator has to like rip off his head and he runs to the God mic and you can hear him on the recording while like Terry Funk is just basically like, hell yeah, this is sick. <laughs> while he's doing that, you could just see the the guy being like, please stop throwing chairs. Please. He's, he's pleading with like, people to throw like, chairs. It's so, da- I mean, it's sort of, the, he sounds like a geek, but it's like <laughs> so insanely dangerous what's happening because right. the guys who are on the ground have to just lay there and take it. So they're getting hit by, 30, 50 chairs are raining on them and they just have to do it. And then Terry Funky gets Jack roll out of the ring pretty quick. They're like, yeah, fuck this. This is too hot for us. And so this is the, this is how popular this guy was. When he says, give me a chair, he made it rain everybody, chairs. Everybody wants to be the chair that Terry uses. <laughs> what I yeah. love is we see Cactus Jack get creamed by a chair he takes it but he doesn't sell it but when terry gets hit by a chair or at least one of the ones that i saw he sells it for the audience like you love us so much that you're just you're not even gonna get out of harm's way you're gonna sell this chair hit first dude (laughs) so this is what's going on ecw they're known for like the hardcore they're known for the ultra violence they're known for the grittiness and so they're getting so popular they want to reach a wider audience so they want to have a pay-per-view event But there's a problem because of how ECW does things, because they're so gritty, they're so in your face. Again, when you hear about these things now in today's context, this all sounds pretty par for the course, honestly. But I think if you go back into the 90s, people really weren't cool with this kind of stuff. And so watching blood, watching chairs, watching people get hurt, especially in wrestling, people were very finger wagging about sex and violence and all that kind of stuff and these guys were just like doing it so i think it it, it might not seem as edgy as it is today but at the time in the context of where it came out it's like 
this is this is crazy. What they're doing is insane. And so networks were like, yeah, no fucking way. We don't want to we don't want to have this on pay-per-view. This is this is what are you guys going to do? They had done a few things that basically got them dropped by <laughs> major pay-per-view providers. And there was a very very infamous incident that happened in ECW's history. It happened November 23rd, 1996, and it's known as the Mass Transit incident. This is one of those controversies that it's like bigger than ECW. It's like one of the most notorious things that's that has ever happened in wrestling. When you look around it, crazy notorious things that have happened. So basically the gist is, is there was going to be a tag team match between, um, I, I forget, I forget who, but they were fighting a, a tag team called the gangsters. One of the opponents who was going to fight on the other tag team, they, they had an emergency. They couldn't make the show. And so there was this new rookie that was going to get, he was he was fighting on the undercard and he was like, oh, this is going to be my chance to maybe get involved with ECW a little bit more. So he goes up to the promoter, Paul Heyman, and he's like, hey, I can absolutely do this spot. I, I can fill in for you. I was I've been like trained by legendary wrestler Killer Kowalski. Like, I'm good to go. So he goes in. He's talking to the gangsters. And one of the one of the gangsters is a pretty infamous wrestler named New Jack. Mm. And. The, the character Mass Trans, the, the guy's name's Eric, but his character was Mass Transit. So he goes and he talks to New Jack and he's like, hey, I think it'd be really cool if I bled during the match, but I'm a little bit new. So I've never I've never bladed before. Do you think you guys could help me out? And so New Jack got really offended by this. He, he took this as a personal slight that this rookie would just like dare ask him this. So basically New Jack was like, oh, yeah, I can absolutely help you bleed in the ring, man. Don't worry about it. And so. In the match, New Jack cuts him excessively and goes way overboard as a, you know, colloquially, it's called like a receipt. But basically, he, he was he was beating the hell out of this kid because this kid was a rookie. And it's sort of a thing that old school guys used to do. Unfortunately, it was like kind of part of the culture. Normally, when somebody bleeds during a match, the way you do it is there's a little teeny tiny piece of a razor and you cut like up here. And so you got to be really careful because in your head, there are arteries. So instead of a little tiny razor blade, New Jack uses a scalpel and he goes across the top of Mass Trans's forehead, of Eric's forehead. He hits two arteries and they just start going, pouring blood, like an insane amount of blood because he hit an artery. The kid goes down. So that's problem one. Problem two, Eric lied about his age. He is not, he is 17 years old when he's in this match. So New Jack has basically just cut a 17 year old kid. And there's, they, they didn't have official footage of the incident, but a fan had a camcorder. So there's, it's pretty infamous. You can find it. I, I honestly wouldn't recommend checking it out. It, it's, it's not the good kind of violence. It's the, it, it is just like borderline snuff. You know what I mean? It's like you're watching, true brutalism that's like is not fun and is not safe and so it's like how could that be enjoyable and it's horrifying because the kid's dad is there and you can hear the kid's dad you like he's 17 like leave him alone leave him to stop so they they are putting this kid on a stretcher and they're getting out of there and so new jack is keeping the character going 
And so he gets a microphone and then like on the microphone and he's on, it's on tape now him being like, I don't give a fuck if this kid dies. Like I fucking hope he does. And to him, he's like in character, he's working or whatever, but that footage is used as evidence in a, in the eventual trial where, where new Jack is brought up on assault with deadly weapon charges. And (laughs) Eric, Kulas, I believe is his name, is personally mm-hmm. sues him for PTSD in in response to just like this whole event. New Jack is acquitted on both on both of those charges, but as a result, uh, ECW barely legal is dropped by every major network because they're like, yeah, no, no way, this is what you guys are all about. And then, unfortunately, uh, Eric Kulas passed away, I believe, from unrelated circumstances four or five years later or something like that but again it is like a a dark dark chapter in wrestling they cover it in dark side of the ring if you're curious to learn more i think in the episode where they talk about new jack and yeah it's it's grim it's pretty grim sammy have you ever seen the mass transit incident i watched this (laughs) very recently for the first time it's a it, it is quite a lot i don't think i've ever seen blood literally gushing on like for realsies and then i you know i was and this happened like very early on in me liking wrestling and then i watched it again as part of the dark side of the ring episode that you mentioned it's not yeah it's not it's not great i will say though that in these matches that we watched for terry funk research there there are some points where he's gushing as well so if you are planning on doing an independent study on terry funk just be aware that there it's the the blood is around and plentiful to the point where at one point i was like i think terry's body is moving in this in a way that it looks like his body is in shock from how much blood he's lost entirely possible yeah, it, it is. It's a combination where it's like, yeah, he's working, but also is probably incredibly really hurt. I don't know. That's that's an interesting thing that I guess I was curious how you feel about this, Sammy. Hmm. I feel like when I'm watching that kind of stuff in the context of this is a hardcore match that everybody agreed to, mm-hmm. I can absolutely tolerate it, even though it's like, oh, they're doing absolute brutality to each other but when it's something where it's like, oh, this is not a consent. This is this is just violence. It's like all of it. it it's like uh, the two acts are very similar, but I feel like just seeing the intent behind it, one of them I'm watching, I'm like, this isn't fucking wrestling. I don't like this. Whereas I would see like, you know, later Terry Funk versus Sabu in this barbed wire match, they're doing insanely brutal things to each other, but it's all under the like, Oh, everybody consented to this. And so I I enjoy it a lot, but where Mm. it's like when the intent is different, I, I found myself being like, I can't even look at this. This is like fucked up. Whereas I've seen plenty of wrestlers bleed, like tons of blood, gushing blood. And so sure. I guess I was just curious, like, do you make that distinction in your head? Does that does that kind of thing feel different to you? Or is it all this? Does it does it reach a certain threshold and then it all feels the same? Well, let me ask this question of you first. If the mass transit incident, like if you watch that footage without knowing that it was not consensual, would you be okay with it in the sense like, oh, this is a wrestling match is presented to me. Everything's fine. No, because I also feel like the mass transit incident is different because they have to stop the match because it's uh, the, the the bleeding is so severe. So anytime I've ever watched a wrestling match and it transgresses beyond like this is no longer a violent performance. This is this is something real that's happening. So somebody gets legitimately injured or somebody gets like 
hurt and isn't okay, then it mm-hmm. then it takes it too far. So even when you watch it, it's it, it to me. It's obvious I feel like you, that it, like somebody. I hurt. feel like the, it is very obvious that th- that this is outside of the intent of what's going on. Okay, uh, and then to answer your question, I I have one threshold, and then I'm like I start feeling sick, and then really worried, and then I start spiraling about oh why am I watching this? But as I mentioned, like in one of the matches, you see Terry's face; its blood is literally gushing. I started feeling sick, even Becky Lynch's broken face. I started feeling sick around that. It's just. And it's not just the presence of blood, but it's also just thinking about like, oh, you're for sure hurt and you're going to have to rest and take a knee. That's where I'm like, oh, no, don't. Yeah, absolutely. Because of things like the mass transit incident, like the the fan support is so rabid that the fans of ECW start a campaign and this is pre-internet or this is like right on the cusp of the internet being a thing so it's like they start a letter writing campaign a phone call campaign just trying to get anybody to run ecw's first pay-per-view event they finally convince somebody but they have they've been told that like basically you have a hard out and you do not get any leeway so it's like as soon as this (laughs) As soon as you hit this threat, thre- like if you if you go over, we will cut the feed. Basically, to me, it it put this entire event on a weird ticking clock that I couldn't help but think about when I was watching the mm. show. And sure. so they're setting up for their first big thing. I listened to this really cool docu series. Almost, it was like a documentary podcast where one of the writers for PW Insider did a whole oral history where he interviewed a lot of people involved in. ECW's first pay-per-view barely legal and it it just got a lot of really cool interesting insight I would highly recommend you check it out I will Mm -hmm. link to it in the show notes but one of the things they said was the night before the show they have a whole dinner where they honor Terry Funk because according according to them they're like we couldn't ECW wouldn't be a thing without without Terry Funk and so we just wanted to like pay our respect to this man who's done so much for us and got us to where we are and now we're about to have our first major pay-per-view and he's going to be there I think the main thing that I took away from Paul's speech what Paul, Paul Heyman's speech was he talks about the story that that gave him the impetus for the idea of ECW and it was talking about being on that car ride with Terry Funk back in 1989, right after Terry Funk gets hurt and where he realizes that he's broken his tailbone and he goes in and he learns he's broken his tailbone. And then he knows that he's about to have the match of his life with Ric Flair. And he knows that the fans want it. And so it's like, he pushes himself to give that match for the fans anyway. And Paul Heyman, according to them was, was there. And he found that like hugely inspirational that it's like, this guy is willing to give so much of himself for this business. And that is the principle that ECW is founded on. And I think you can see that from the matches we're going to talk about in a little more depth is that these guys get so hurt and they just Mm -hmm. keep going. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's always a good thing to be completely honest with you. It's really not. (laughs) It, it's it's not, but it is also one of those things like as as a, a fan, it does make me care about these performers when they push themselves and they do these feats that seem superhuman. You know, when Cody Rhodes, right, he tore his pec and then he still fought in a hell in a cell. That's insane. Like that's that's crazy. T- Triple H tore his quad and then he still did a street. fight. He tore his quad at the beginning of the match. He still did a street fight just to keep going. 
And it's like, these are not advisable things, but they are these superhuman acts that when I see them as a fan, I can't help but appreciate like these, these performers that I love so much are giving so much of themselves that this is insane. And so it really just felt really cool to see that they're about to have an event where they're like, this is, this is the, this is the biggest thing we've ever done. And we still want to take time out of our schedule to pay respect to the guy who helped us do it. And I think that's, that's one of my favorite things about wrestling and the culture of wrestlers is that it is an industry that is built on respect. And so they were like, we can't do this. We, we couldn't even think about doing this, this show without paying respect to the guys who came before us. And I just think that's really cool. And that's really special. And that's one of the reasons why I like being a wrestling fan so much. Yeah, I agree. I think just the appreciation that wrestlers and everybody involved in wrestling have for the sacrifices that some people do. Do? Do you do sacrifice? <laughs> but like, uh, I know a couple of people who do sacrifice. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. Um, yeah, I. it's just, again, I, I hope that I say this every episode, but wrestling is cute. I think it's just... And and maybe it's just the the nature of it because these are people who are putting their bodies and lives kind of in danger for our enjoyment. But yeah, I I don't think that there's there's anything like wrestling at all. And it's not just what they're doing in the ring, but it's just the the dedication and the loyalty to the craft. It's just outstanding. Let's get out of this pay-per-view, big boy. This is ECW's first big pay-per-view. So it's like, this is huge. They bring in extra production. They bring in guys. It's like a whole battle to even get on the air. And now they're like doing this legit. So they're in the ECW arena. It's like a warehouse where they've made their reputation. They're doing their first event there, but they're like adding in extra lights and productions. And they're like pushing like as two people who were, who have worked behind the scenes in live performance, they are like pushing the mm. limits of what you can do with the venue you have available to you. They are like redlining it the entire time, all to put on this like insane pay-per-view event. <laughs> I was listening to some more of those interviews in the the doc that you mentioned, and I was I was feeling a little bit jealous and like a feeling of FOMO. Mm-hmm. In 1997, mm-hmm. I was like, what, seven years old? But just hearing the excitement and again how much they pushed this venue to its to its maximum, I was like, fuck, I really would have loved to be there. The behind the scenes crew guy in me was like, oh, that sounds so awesome. Like, uh like, like fuck yes. <laughs> rigging lights, running cable. Uh. Give me a headset. Let's yeah. go. Give me a headset. I want to I wanna I want to run cable to a to a truck. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I was I was really feeling it too. But anyways, so the main event of this whole huge like ECW flagship, this is the this is the planting their flag they're calling their shot they're like okay look here's the main event we're gonna do another three-way dance so it's like they're gonna do a three-way dance and then the person who wins this three-way dance will immediately that night directly after this match get to challenge the ecw champion who is a man named raven Sammy, do you have any opinions about Raven just from putting, you know, checking out the matches and doing a little research? I only saw him in the context of this, and I have one word for Raven. Bastard. (laughs) True. So what I like about Raven is, you know how Paul Hyman said that he wanted ECW to be grunge. I think Mm -hmm. Raven really embodies that. He's got long 
hair and he would wear like leather jackets and flannels and band t-shirts and jeans and stuff like that. And I think what people really liked about Raven was he would cut these very interesting promos because Mm -hmm. in, in the early nineties, eighties, stuff like that, people would, you know, it was a lot of like, I'm the best wrestler in the world and I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do it. Whereas Raven was a lot more, conversational it almost felt like actor monologue where it's like let me take let me like paint a picture of a situation that happened in my life and that explains why i'm angry at this person or let me take you back in time to an incident the two of us had and it it, it felt it felt real it felt it it felt very honest in a way that professional wrestling promos weren't really presented at that time. And so he was just like this very cult leader, charming, (laughs) evil guy. And so he had basically a cult. They were called the Raven's Nest and they would just do his bidding for him. The one of the main guys that Raven and Raven's Nest had set their sights on is one of the competitors in this very match. His name is the Sandman. Oh man. How do I even describe the Sandman? He is just a, a real salt of the earth. <laughs> I mean, you called Raven a bastard. I would call the Sandman a bastard. He's just like a <laughs> tough fucking bastard where he would walk out to the ring smoking and then he pounds mm-hmm. beers and then breaks the can on his forehead to the point where his, his forehead bleeds. And then he would walk around with a kendo stick because mm-hmm. I, I, in my research about like, okay, what is Sandman's whole deal? There was, I guess, an incident in 1994 an international incident made international news where I guess a teen in Singapore got caught doing vandalism. And so Mm -hmm. the punishment for that is he would get caned. And so it became like caned with a, with a kendo stick basically. And so it became this whole international incident with like, he's an American. You can't do that. And, and Singapore was like, well, he broke the law. So the, you know, he's going to get the punishment. And so I think the kid ended up getting caned and it was like, put really strained relations between the U S Singapore because of it. And Sandman read this news story and was like, Hey, I'm going to just start bringing a cane to the ring and I'm going to start caning people. And it was like, that's the kind of, that's the kind of guy Sandman was. And so (laughs) Raven had set his sights directly on the Sandman during this feud. And so he had done all kinds of messed up stuff. Like there was a storyline where he, he Raven brainwashed Sandman's like ex-wife and Sandman's son and turned them against him. And it's like, there is an infamous thing where there's a little boy in the ring being like, like you're not my father. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, it's so nuts. And it's like, and so like they had been feuding for the title, so they've been trading the title back and forth. So it's like Sandman had it, Raven took it for him. Sandman got it back, Raven took it back. And so it's like he wanted to do it. And then one of the most infamous things that happened was Raven crucified nope. Sandman. <laughs> and this might sound a little familiar for people who watched the first episode is in WWE, I want to say three, four years later, two years later, yeah. something like that. The WWE has the Undertaker sacrifice people, and so he (laughs) tied them to a symbol, and it it was vaguely crucifixion-esque. This Mm. was not that. This was, uh, we are going to make a cross, and we are going to tie the Sandman to the cross, and we're going to put a barbed wire (laughs) crown of thorns on Sandman's head. So this is like straight-up sacrilegious blasphemous <laughs> this is crazy shit Jesus. that is happening in the 90s where again i cannot stress to people who might be a little bit younger the 90s 
especially when it comes to to, to Christian, like sacrilegious Christian imagery, people were really not okay with that kind of stuff. So it yeah. was shocking when it happened. And there was a wrestler who would go on to wrestle for WWF. His name is Kurt Angle. He was looking about maybe joining ECW at the time. And he saw that they were doing this crucifixion angle. And he was like, yeah, fuck this. I quit. Like, there's no way. Like, I don't want to take any Come part on, of this. Kurt. <laughs> and that was also that. And so this crucifixion angle and this mass transit incident, those were one of the many reasons why people were like, this is the kind of stuff ECW does. Like, no way. We're not we're not putting you guys on pay-per-view. So all of that is swirling in the atmosphere. So like to, to, to say Sandman and Raven have a really complicated history and Sandman really wants to win this. He really wants his revenge. Next person in this match is a guy named Stevie Richards and mm-hmm. Stevie Richards and Raven also have a really complicated history because you know how I said Raven had a cult. Stevie mm-hmm. Richards was in the cult. He was like Raven's right hand man. You know, when I talked about how Raven and Raven's cult, crucified the Sandman. Guess who was mm-hmm. there for that? Guess who helped crucify Sandman? Stevie Not Richards Stevie. did. <laughs> Stevie did it. Stevie did it. And BWO so there, Stevie? Yeah, I yeah. The, the BWOs own Stevie Richards. So <laughs> oh, God. their relationship gets really strained and it gets really fractured. And like Sammy just said, Stevie Richards starts his own group that is a direct parody of a, a huge WCW group called the NWO, the New World Order. And he go, they go by BWO. And so they're just directly making fun of WCW. They're making fun of the NWO. And they come out in little crop and little blue crop tops. And they call themselves the BWO, <laughs> Blue or- World Order. They are insanely popular. People think it's so funny. They are referencing other companies and making fun of them, which is like they're making fun of Hulk Hogan, which is just stuff you don't do in wrestling. Mm-hmm. It's like this in its own way is sacrilegious like this to wrestling it is or it's like i mean what what the fuck are these guys doing and so it made them so popular that it it made stevie richards super popular that now he's challenging for the title that if he wins he's gonna have to fight his old leader and that's crazy and then last up we have terry funk who i think in this whole run is making no bones about the fact that he's like i'm really old and i don't know how much longer (laughs) i can do this anymore and i think this is my last shot and mm. this is it for me. This all I want to do is retire as the ECW champion. And I don't know if I have the same stuff that these guys have, but I'm going to give it my best. Yeah, they have these like amazing promo packages and video packages that they cut where it's just Terry Funk visiting his father's grave and talking about how like all his father ever wanted to do was win the championship and he could never do it. And so if Terry Funk is able to win, the ECW championship. It's like he can finally fulfill the dream. This family dream. It's like, and look, I'm not an old man. I know that this is probably like, I'm not going to get too many shots like this. So I'm going to take it. Terry Funk does not get, he, he doesn't get, he doesn't get a shot. They're like, no way. And the guy who earns the shot is his protege, Tommy Dreamer, who's somewhat known. He, he's, he's hand selected by Tommy Dreamer or by Terry Funk to be like, you will succeed me. You, you are my protege. And so Tommy Dreamer also has a huge issue with Raven. <laughs> like these guys have been <laughs> feuding for years. And basically Tommy Dreamer has never been able to pin Raven. He's never been able to beat this guy. And so he mm. finally earns this opportunity to get into this three-way dance where if he wins, he's going to get to potentially beat Raven, the thing he's never been able to do to get the gold. 
Tommy Dreamer wins the number one contendership. He's like, no, I'm going to give my shot. I'm going to give it to my mentor, Terry Funk, so that Terry can take his last shot at the title because I wow. believe in him that much. So this is what we're walking into <laughs> when we get into the three-way dance, April 13th, 1997, ECW's first pay-per-view event. We're in the main event, barely mm-hmm. legal, a three-way dance, Terry Funk, Stevie Richards versus the Sandman. Sammy, we watched yeah. this match. How did you feel? <laughs> this was fucking nuts. Sandman, he uses a ladder in a way that I have always been afraid of when we watch a ladder match, which is he uses it as a full-on weapon. Most people use ladders as another surface, right? Climbing on top of whatever. This son of a bitch. Yeah, it, he uses it, like, it a like a club. Like a chair. Yeah, I, he's throwing it. He's whipping it. He's doing... Sammy is not underselling it. It's like what, he is so reckless with this ladder. I I also was shocked. I couldn't believe it. And he's not even like struggling with the weight of it. And the announcers talk about how Sandman is hammered while he's wrestling. Michael mentioned it a little bit that he chugs beers. So he chugged three beers before this match. And I was like, oh yeah, he's super hammered. And then he brings out this fucking ladder. And it's what's funny to me is that for this match specifically, he disappears for a little bit. And you're like, where, where's he going? And then he comes like back with a ladder. He's sneaking another beer, that son of a bitch. And then he comes out right. with a fucking ladder. <laughs> it's a ladder that he's throwing around. He's he's swinging it like a bat. And he's like, he's not even struggling with the weight of it. And I'm like, dude, how drunk do you have to be to treat a ladder like it weighs five pounds? It's fucking nuts. But then also Terry turns it around and around and around because he puts his head in the middle of it. And then helicopters... With the ladder! (laughs) Yeah. And it's one of those things, for me, revisiting the match, I have not checked in on old ECW stuff since I first got into wrestling. And Mm. it it was just getting to see these old familiar characters again that, man, I forgot how much I loved Sandman. Where it's like, again, (laughs) I just want to underline it because it is so crazy. His theme song is Enter Sandman by Metallica. He comes out (laughs) smoking a cigarette and it's not Uh a fresh cigarette. He's been smoking. It's like almost down to the filter. He walks out. He's been smoking this for real. (laughs) He walks out, pulls a beer out of his pocket and then just like chugs it up in the air. It's like, and then breaks the can over his head to the point where he starts bleeding. And in this match, he does that three times on the way to the ring. (laughs) Three times, baby. At the start of the match, Terry Funk, the gentleman, the noble gentleman, he's shaking people's hands. And then Sandman in his own way is like, oh, hey, do you want? Oh, I got a beer. Do you want it? And then Terry Funk's like, no, 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 I could never. And then Sandman's like, all right. And then he just pops it. He drinks a fourth (laughs) beer. He drinks a fourth one. Oh, he drinks three total. (laughs) Okay, so he drinks two on the way. And then he drinks his third in the ring before the match even starts. (laughs) This guy's a fucking maniac. And then he's got like the kendo stick the whole time. And it's just like he he's wrestling in like what do they call it? Zubaz pants? Like just these <laughs> crazy nineties pattern. And he's in tennis yeah. shoes and a t-shirt that has beer all spilled on it already. This guy's it's uh, this guy's look, WWE could never. Dude, the, this match is just so 
crazy. There's so much stuff going on mm-hmm. where they are getting trash can. Oh, every time Sandman disappears to the back, he comes out with a new weapon. And I don't mm-hmm. know if you notice this, but every time he throws the the weapon into the ring. So the first time he throws a ladder, the second time yeah. he throws a trash can, but every time uh-huh. he throws it, he hits Terry Funk directly in the head. So the first thing <laughs> yeah. he, he runs, he walks over the ladder, tosses it in. It's like, and then you see it hit Terry Funk. And then he, you know, they're fighting, they're fighting. They're using the ladder. Terry, Terry Funk spins it around like a helicopter. They, they start pinning it and seesawing it so that the legs are flying everywhere. That and, was such a brutal fucking spot, dude. Like whatever, yeah. That seesaw, I've never, never thought about a ladder doing that. I, I'm speechless. Yeah, Sandman, and come on, dog. And they're just doing it willy nilly. At one point, they set it up <laughs> and do the seesaw out in the crowd, and mm-hmm. so they're using they're using the barricade as the counterweight. And so somebody's just out there, and then I think I think Sandman jumps from mm-hmm. the ring onto the ladder, yeah. and you just see it go like, <laughs> and there are people around. It, like the ladder could have oh hit somebody so easily. Yeah. So then Sandman, he goes back, he gets a trash can. And again, he throws it to the ring and immediately it's like thunk. And he hits Terry Funk in the head again. It's it's no ordinary trash can. It is a trash. It is a metal trash can surrounded by another layer of metal. What's interesting about this match is because it's a three way dance. Mm-hmm. It's it's elimination style. So the whole time I was watching it, I was like, OK, people are going for pinfalls, but everybody in the match like doesn't really seem to care. And then I realized when you get pinned, you get eliminated. So it led mm. to a different kind of triple threat that I'm used to seeing that I thought was really cool, where there would be these very loose alliances that would form for just a move. And then it would be mm-hmm. like, oh, they're hitting tag team maneuvers on a mutual enemy. Because it's like in their best interest to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah we'll do it. We'll, we'll pin this guy, and then 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 the two of us will fight. And so I thought that led to a very cool, interesting dynamic between mm. between the three. I think Sandman is kind of <laughs> the one getting most of the the goodies from uh-huh. <laughs> from backstage and under the ring. So at one point, he goes under the ring and he pulls out a huge bunch of barbed wire. <laughs> and because like earlier in the night they, they threw streamers like Sabi was talking about. So streamers get wrapped up in the barbed wire. And so <laughs> it's just the, the the barbed wire is is bright and colorful, but it is still straight up barbed wire. And so Sabi, oh, I was God. curious. Uh-huh. It, it made the it, it made that weapon have a fun pizzazz that I don't normally see in hardcore mm-hmm. wrestling matches. Sure. And I guess if you were to give a weapon a fun makeover. What weapon would you choose? This is crazy. I would attach a music box to a chainsaw. (laughs) So like when you pull the chainsaw and it starts going, it makes the music box play. But because chainsaws are so fucking fast, the music box would be like. (laughs) This was horrifying. That's horrifying. (laughs) You lin, you lunatic. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So Sandman wraps himself in this colorful barbed wire and then he just starts running into people. <laughs> He's just really so nilly up. all over the place. It's totally crazy. So I believe Stevie Richards is the first person to get pinned mm-hmm. in this match. And so he gets taken out. And then it's just Sandman and Terry Funk fighting each other. And it's like, again, Terry Funk is in his 50s. He's like 53 when this is happening. 
And so he's just getting brutalized by Sandman. And then at the very end, he ends up, I think Stevie Richards gets back in the match. He sh- he puts the trash can on top, super kicks the trash can. And then that allows Terry Funk to get the pinfall. Mm-hmm. And then he wins, which means he has to fight Raven literally right now. Immediately. One problem. Mm. You know how I said they're on a strict time limit? That means that this, if if the match against Raven goes any longer than 10 minutes, they are going to cut the feed, basically. So they are in a very real way racing against time, which I was keenly aware of when I was watching the match. And so it added an extra layer of tension to Mm. me of being like, are they going to be able to finish this? Because this match, I would say, is just as crazy in half the time. So yeah. they they go nuts. And so I, I think what makes this match completely different is that in, in the course of the barbed wire and all the stuff, Terry Funk is bleeding. And then yeah. Raven comes in and he just starts beating him with the title. He starts beating him with chairs. And mm-hmm. for about five minutes of this seven minute match, you are just seeing Raven dominate Terry Funk, a medic, and he tries to like make sure Terry Funk's okay. Terry Funk waves him away, but they cut to a close-up where it's like he's covered in it's blood. Gushing. Blood yeah, is, is in his one, eye. Yeah. It's it's a haunting visual. And he still is like, no, no, no. And he like tries to get up and he's swinging blindly and he's falling and he can't do it. All of this is happening while Terry Funk's protege mm-hmm. is on commentary. And Sammy, I guess I was just curious. How did you feel about Tommy Dreamer on commentary? Well, he was really quiet during the first one. And it's just, well, he's he's watching his mentor, his father figure, just get brutalized by these dudes. So he's not saying much, but he's just like, oh, don't. And then when the medics are coming in during Terry and Raven's match, he's like, hey, get get those get the medic out of there terry wouldn't want to go out that way i'm like terry's gonna die dude it's okay if he just gets a little bit of help yeah please please and 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 yeah sammy's right so what's notable about ecw commentary is they have one commentator generally so they brought in tommy Mm -hmm. dreamer as like a special commentator to commentate for his mentor but if you listen to the PW Insider documentary, I think Tommy mm-hmm. Dreamer is pretty upfront about the fact that he was like, yeah, I, don't, I, I had no idea what I was doing and mm-hmm. I didn't really know what was going on. And then I got sucked into watching the match. And at one point, the the commentator, Joey Styles tries to ask him a question. <laughs> and then Tommy Dreamer is like, Joey, listen, can you do? He's like, I got to ask you to do me a favor. Like, I can't do commentary. I just got to watch this. Please leave me alone. <laughs> he says it's on live. It's live. It's just recorded. Like, they can't do it again. It's just him being like, hey, man, I kind of just want to watch this because you like, leave me alone. <laughs> right. While... Terry Funk like cannot stand up and is like literally dying in front yeah, of him. Getting, like, yeah, actually, I got to watch this. <laughs> it reminded me of your journey with commentary where it's like the that incident. Just, it just felt <laughs> like it just felt like a very Sammy move. That just seems like something you would do. We were like, hey, listen, dude, I can't do commentary right now. I'm just going to watch this. And you're like, you're being paid. This is your job. You're supposed to be a commentator. You're like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. Actually, no, thank you. I, I think mean, it's good boundaries. I think it's really cool. Tommy Dreamer has a pretty good sense of humor about the whole situation, but. Sure. That's funny that the behind the scenes was like, he just didn't know what was going on and what to say. <laughs> yeah. 
It was that. that. I think I think he also got sucked into the match too, like we all did. Crazy fucking match. It only what seven minutes? Se- oh. I, it didn't feel like seven minutes. And so the, like the time is counting down. At a certain point, Raven's cult members swarm the ring and they all start working over Funk. And then Raven like calls for a microphone and he's like, Hey, Tommy Dreamer, look what I'm about to do to your mentor. I'm about to put him through these three tables right in front of you. So to- the commentary is up on this. 12 15 foot perch and so they set up three tables underneath it and so i guess raven's gonna drag terry funk's lifeless body to these three tables and so tommy dreamer's like you know what like let's do it like let's go for it but it seemed like it was all a ruse because sneaking it behind him was a wrestler named big dick dudley who Uh, sammy i don't know if you know this but He's one of the original Dudley boys. Oh wow. Were there three or did he was he replaced? There were like nine Dudleys. No. So way. originally it was the Dudley family, the ones who jumped over to WWF after ECW went out of business, was Bubba Ray and Devon. But they mm. were those two were originally part of a bigger Dudley collective, one of whom was Big Dick Dudley. But the Dudleys were sort of loosely aligned with Raven's faction. And so Mm -hmm. this was all a ruse. So Big Dick Dudley, he sneaks up behind Tommy Dreamer and he tries to hit a choke slam. Tommy Dreamer reverses it, also has a very good sense of humor about this too, delivers one of the weirdest choke slams. Here's what it is. Honestly, it's like if I tried to deliver a choke slam to somebody, Mm -hmm. it's just like not going to happen. It's not going to work. And so the guy like it it basically Tommy Dreamer just pushes this guy off the ledge like he's going for a choke slam, but it's all mistimed and he just kind of looks. But the dude falls 10 feet goes through three tables and then with that distraction Tommy Dreamer is able to make it down to the ring and he delivers a DDT to Raven and we are truly if you listen to the to the documentary the behind the scenes people Mm -hmm. are swarming all over ringside trying to be like guys we have literally one minute like we have to wrap this up so with all that delivers the DDT. Terry Funk crawls over. He's going to get the pinfall on Raven. Raven kicks out and they're like, we have 30 seconds like, before Raven, they cut stop. the feed. So they do it. <laughs> Raven like gets up, he gets a head full of Steve and then Terry Funk, ever the professional, hits him with one of the oldest tricks in the book, a classic roll up. One, mm-hmm. two, three. Terry Funk wins the championship against like all odds. He had been getting dominated for six minutes straight. And then is like able to turn the tide. He's able to turn back the clock and he wins the ECW heavyweight championship. And he, it, the pay-per-view event ends with Terry Funk in the crowd and bleeding, holding the title. And everyone's just chanting, Terry, Terry, Terry. The broadcast goes off the air and then the generator in the truck blows up is what they say. And then they're like, they cannot get it back online. And so they were like, it it happened like truly 30 seconds to a minute after they were done recording. And they were, they were all like, look, if that had happened five minutes earlier, we would have been screwed. If we had gone on one minute longer, we would have been screwed. And so it was just like a confluence of events of being like, they pushed the building to the absolute limit and it (laughs) lasted just long enough for them to get their first pay-per-view out. But it doesn't matter. Like it, it is a historic event, especially in ECW's history and hardcore history, but also in Terry Funk's history, because at like 53 years old, he captures the ECW. He's the champion now. What did you absorb from that gauntlet that Terry Funk went through? I absorbed one thing and one thing alone. Should 
I chokeslam you through three tables if we get 1,000 followers on YouTube. <laughs> oh, you're going to you're gonna Tommy Dreamer style chokeslam <laughs> me through some tables? Okay. I mean, not Tommy Dreamer style because it looked like he just pushed someone off a ledge. <laughs> but I would sincerely chokeslam you through three tables. So that's interesting that that you've added it to the long list of potential ways I'm going through that table when we hit our goal. Okay. I got to say, so far, that one's like my least favorite. But I, if you if that's what <laughs> you want, I'll do it for well, you. Well, look. You and I'll do it for the fans. Terry The Buck. fans. For the love of the fans. Yeah, I want to no get I want to give people their money's worth. So if if it's if it's best for business for me to get chokeslam Tommy <laughs> Dreamer style, I will do it. Terry Funk's the champ. He's the champion. Mm hmm. What do you say? Does he does he ride off into the sunset? What does he do next? Well, he doesn't have a retirement match, so he comes back to play Born to be Wired, a hell of a fucking match between him and Sabu on August 9th, 1997. So this is about five months after Barely Legal, the, where he wins the title. Five months later, he's challenging, or he's being challenged by Sabu in an event called Born to be Wired, where the match they're going to take part in is a barbed wire match. And Sammy, what is a barbed wire match? And how's it different than a normal match? Well, a normal match, Michael, is set in a wrestling ring where... The ropes are tensioned rope. So instead of these coated ropes, it's just barbed wire. And I'd like to take a moment to say this right now is I don't like it. I don't like the barbed wire. When the barbed wire comes out in wrestling, I don't like it. It makes me sick to my stomach because there's no faking barbed wire and the injuries. And uh, I don't like it. I don't like it, Michael. We are a far cry from the chicken wire match uh, that we talked about in He's in a Seas episode. It is one of those things where I'm a pretty seasoned, hardcore deathmatch watcher. And this there there's some stuff that happens in this match that I was like, this is this is stomach churning stuff. And what's interesting like about it. a barbed wire match is normally in a normal match is you run and you bounce off the ropes and that's just what you do. But the whole first five, six minutes is them doing everything in their power to avoid going into this barbed wire. And normally what I always find really funny about barbed wire matches is wrestlers who normally are showing off their cool chiseled physiques are magically wearing T-shirts now. <laughs> and so so Terry Funk, he comes out in a T-shirt. And Sabu is just in his normal gear. He's like shirtless. He's like, yeah, whatever. It's barbed wire. I don't care. Terry Funk throws him into the barbed wire. And instead of bouncing, he just gets like, like you run like his ship runs onto the rocks. It runs aground. He doesn't go any further. There's no momentum. And then what does Terry Funk do? Mm. He picks him up and it's called an atomic drop, but he basically drops him directly on his crotch on the top barbed wire rope. And maybe you're like, okay, maybe it's not actually barbed wire. But then when Terry Funk tries to pull him away, his tights rip 
And so it's like he's just wrestling in his tights and underwear. And I got to say, that's like a hidden extra fear that I didn't know I had if I was ever in a wrestling situation <laughs> where I was like, oh, and my pants are ripped too. He wrestles for like 15 <laughs> minutes in ripped pants. It's it's nuts. Sammy, I'd be scared. Everyone's going to see my butt. You know, I yeah, I was really upset to see that Sabu's like really pretty shiny pants were ripped pretty quickly into this match. And that's that's not even the most messed up part is so uh, uh, then the tide turns right and then Sabu is kind of in control he gets a chair and he does this like nasty leg where he throws Terry Funk into the barbed wire he's all tied up and then Sabu does like a fly he jumps uses the chair as like a a launch pad and he does a leg drop onto Terry Funk directly onto this barbed wire so then throws Terry Funk into the corner he goes to do it again only this time he when he's in midair Terry Funk jumps out of the way and Sabu like lands so hard and gets a real injury where he like rips his bicep open. And so he's just like bleeding. A doctor comes in and they give him tape and you can see him just like taping his own arm while they're fighting. Terry Funk sees sees this. So while Sabu is legitimately taping up his arm because he's like hit barbed wire and it's bleeding, Terry Funk hits him with it's called a hangman neckbreaker where basically Mm -hmm. if we were standing back to back, I would pull your head over my shoulder and then just fully drop and sit down. And so it's just like you see somebody's head go like and it it, it looks horrific. And so it's like he's doing that while Sabu is taping his arm and then he like hits him with that. It's so violent. It's so insane. And then at a certain point, they introduce wire cutters into the mm-hmm. match. And mm-hmm. so then Sabu just starts cutting off little chunks of the ring. Terry Funk does it too. So Terry Funk cuts off some little pieces with the wire cutter and he makes it into a whip. And then he just starts whipping Sabu with it. And then Sabu like <laughs> cuts off. Basically, the ring ropes. So now they're not fighting in any ring. He wraps Terry Funk up and puts him on a table. Then he goes and he gathers. They're in like fi- 15 feet of barbed wire. They're like covered, completely they're wrapped inside up inside of it. of it. They're wrapped up inside of it. So Terry Funk is on this table. He's covered in like 15 feet of barbed wire. Sabu wraps himself in barbed wire. And then he runs and does another jump onto terry funk they go through the table and then the two barbed wire clumps get stuck together and they're just like rolling around and writhing around they've completely consumed each other they're like the same barbed wire entity at that point and they're like struggling to move they're struggling to get around and they manage to get back into the ring and they can't go more than a foot away from each other. And Terry yeah. Funk is kind of pinned and trapped on his back. So Sabu goes for the cover and Terry tries to push him away. But it's like, where where are they going to go there? <laughs> if either of them moves any further than they further than they did, they would have cut open an artery f- for sure. It was like a matter of life and death to not move too much. It's fucking yeah. crazy, dude. So it's like they couldn't go. So then Sabu goes for another cover and it's like they're Terry, he's just like trapped. He can't get out. And it's like one, two, three. Sabu picks up the title, but he does not get to celebrate for a couple of minutes because then a swarm of people backstage are like coming and they're trying to to cut them out of the barbed wire. And it takes truly three minutes to get anybody anywhere near being able to like walk out after they've just been wrapped in all this barbed wire. It's insane. I loved the warning that we got before this match, which was due to the violent nature of this matchup, 
Most of it will not be aired on television. This matchup exclusively for ECW home video. Like, fuck off. Come on. So Terry Funk, he get like he loses the ECW championship and then has basically declared that it's like he he intends to retire. And so the thing he wants to do more than anything is retire with the ECW championship, which takes us to his last official ECW match, which is August 17th, 1997 at Hardcore Heaven. It's Terry Funk versus Sabu versus Shane Douglas, who you may remember that was Mm -hmm. the very first triple threat match that they did all the way back in 1994 that kind of put them on the map. They're like running back that 60 minute time limit draw. And Terry Funk is determined to end his career as the champion. And Sammy, this takes place eight days after the barbed wire match. Only eight days, Michael. Are you kidding me? And like, I looked at Sabu's skin and there's like, actual scar tissue but i'm pretty sure like i feel like if i got cut by barbed wire i would still be scabby you know what i mean that's crazy 100 percent. and so he had to get 100 stitches in his arm so his arm is bandaged up and and in the spirit of terry funk like we said sabu has gone into this match after just receiving 100 stitches According to the commentator, he then super glued his arm just to make sure Mm-mm. the stitches don't rip during the match. And he comes Mm-mm. out with this huge bandage. And then these guys, yeah, they run back their infamous match, right? So it's like hardcore, hard hitting. And in the end, I think Sabu gets taken out first. So now we're down to Shane Douglas and Terry Funk, meaning whoever wins, there's going to be a new champion regardless. And so it gets really close. But in the end, Shane Douglas comes out victorious and Terry Funk does not end his career as ECW champion, unfortunately. Fuck. A month later, Terry Funk is officially going to retire. He has a a huge event that he's calling Terry Funk's WrestleFest in which he's going to fight Bret Hart, who at the time was the WWF champion. And so... These guys, you know, they put on a, a classic match, it's like a 25, 30, 30 minute match. Terry Funk's retirement. And in the end, Bret Hart picks up the victory because, again, he's old school. And so a philosophy for old school guys is for your very for, for your very last match. You always want to put the guy over uh, on your way out the door. So. That's like a big I've heard a lot of old school guys talk about it where they're like for your final match, you lose. And that's just what you do, because it 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 helps the younger. It helps the people you're wrestling. Right. Because it's like, oh, they're the one who retired you. So that helps them build their character and their mystique. So Terry Funk, ever the professional, was like, hey, it's my last match. Let's 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 give Bret Hart the rub at the end of that. How do you feel, Sammy? That's it. Oh, I was just going to say. Why was Brett so pissed at Sean then? <laughs> About the screw job? Yeah. He wasn't retiring. And also it's because that's not what they literally agreed to. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> no, that's funny. I, I appreciate that. And so at the very end of that match, Tommy Dreamer comes out with the ECW championship and they award it to Terry Funk to be like, You've done so much for us. We just wanted to declare you the lifetime ECW champion. And oh. so even though he didn't win it at the at the triple threat, he now gets to end his career as the lifetime ECW champion. And Sammy, 
with mm. that, Terry Funk finally retires for lo- for like three months, and then he's immediately <laughs> back to wrestling. He, he wrestles in ECW. Oh, the gosh. ECW goes out of business. They they mm-hmm. cut. Co- they get acquired by the WWE in two thousand one, I believe, and then they're relaunched in like two thousand and six. And then they go, then they get defunct again in like 2010. Paul Heyman ends up working for WWF and has become the advisor to the tribal chief among many, 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 many other things. He was like head of creative. He's a manager. He's done all kinds Mm -hmm. of stuff. Yeah. Like very well known. And then Terry Funk officially wrestled his last match in 2017. And he unfortunately passed away in 2023 so his final match september 22nd 2017 and sammy that was terry funk like we went through all that we 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 went to the 60s and beyond we went to the 90s i could i can't believe it we've really done it yeah we've done it all we went to japan we went to philadelphia what philadelphia (laughs) yeah what from japan to philadelphia we've done it all this episode sammy (laughs) How did you feel? What did you pick up? What were some things that stood out to you? I think throughout all of the research and all of the wrestlers that we've we've touched on already in the long history of Wrestling Academy, we always hear that this wrestler is, you know, once in a lifetime lightning in a bottle, right? And I think that that's what's so cool about wrestling is nobody's speaking out of turn when they're calling these people once once in a lifetime, you know? And we're spoiled with this collection of superhuman people who don't actually possess superpowers. Terry, I think, is a once-in-a-lifetime man in a group of once-in-a-lifetime people. And he's just so special. And what he did was so special. And you have to love wrestling to continue to do wrestling. But you have to really, really love wrestling to do what Terry Funk did. And I am, yeah, I'm really appreciative. I think the thing I was thinking about when we were putting this episode together was we started our podcast talking about the attitude era, right? So we were talking <laughs> yeah. about DX and, and uh, all that was really appealing to us. It was like, oh, we liked the the crazy soap opera-y salacious stuff. We liked the hardcore violence and none of that would have been like DX NWO, none of that stuff would have happened if ECW hadn't have happened. And ECW wouldn't have happened without Terry Funk. If Terry Funk hadn't have reinvented himself in the 90s and he had gotten into hardcore wrestling, right? He had, if he hadn't done death matches, right? He might not have helped put Mick Foley on the map. He, there are so many, so many things that we personally have covered in our podcast and we have talked about how much we love and admire and appreciate them. And none of those things would have been possible without a guy like Terry Funk, who was a veteran three times over by the time he got involved with ECW that was a veteran when he got involved with all Japan, but it's like the guy loved underdogs and he likes supporting the next generation and he liked helping people out and he felt a tremendous responsibility to the fans. And so even though I was like a wrestling fan, I didn't know a ton about him. I actually did because his legacy was so great and so vast and he was so influential on so many different levels to so many different generations that you'd be impossible to not enjoy wrestling 
and not be appreciative of something that Terry Funk contributed no matter what kind of wrestling that you like. And so it was just really interesting to be like, oh, I think we found a huge piece of what has inspired so many wrestlers that inspire us. And so it was just really cool to be like, oh, who are my influences influences? And let's like Mm -hmm. follow the thread back. And it was really cool to get into wrestling history. This episode was like a lot of fun. And I was just like, I was just so glad we got to spend some time with Terry Funk and get to meet him properly. And yeah, absolutely. He's had such a long career that we could probably do more episodes about him in the future. Just talking about a different era. This stretch of time that we talked about was literally six six years, years. (laughs) six years of his 50 year career. So it's like we're definitely going to be talking about Terry Funk again, probably soon. Uh, I love this. I love this. And I love us. And I love Terry. And we love you, our audience. Thank you for listening to Wrestling Academy. It is hosted, produced and edited by Michael Classic and me, Sam Junio. Follow on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Wrestling Academy Pod, and send us an email at WrestlingAcademyPod at gmail.com. And you can follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Spotify, where we have Q&As and polls for every episode. And I think we just, what I'm curious to know is, who is one of the most influential or most underrated wrestlers uh, either of all time or just like that you personally think has influenced so many people who doesn't get the credit they deserve because I I, I really want to know more I want to I want to I want to chase down my influences and I want to expand my wrestling knowledge even further than we've been doing uh, before but you can do that uh, hit us up on Spotify or you can check out our website wrestlingacademy.university yes that is our real URL because we commit to the bit. Thank you so much, members of the media. I hope you all go to hell. Class, Class dismissed. dismissed. Stop the chairs! Stop the chairs! Stop the chairs! <laughs> stop throwing chairs! Please stop throwing chairs! <laughs> 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 <laughs>